Today, January the 12th, 2020. Oh my gosh. Lecture discussion number 88, we think. On the, by we, I mean me, on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, and Ecclesiastes, and here we are back. When we were last here, uh, the usual pile of material that I accumulate had grown to an unmanageable size, as it always does. And as also always the case, the mass has continued to grow, and such is the disadvantage of the winter sabbatical for us, for me. My absences uh, contribute to the size of the pile, and the pile always wins, and eventually I give up and just move on, pretending I've covered it, which you know I never accomplish. So what has happened of note since December the 15th, 2019? That's when we were last here in a lecture format. I, I, we came in on the 22nd for a attenuated uh, candlelight service. Well, Anchorage has built the, the fast and mentioned has been between 15 and 20 below for what, two weeks? Has it been two weeks? And uh, the, there's, uh, there was a, we thought there was no end in sight, but it warmed up to minus one today, I think. That's fantastic. So it's fun times for all of us here. That's why we live here, because it's cold and it's dark and it kills things that way. And we're happy about that. The Iranians are demonstrating instability. And whenever Persia, Ezekiel 38.5, or Rosh, and I should put their names down here because they are actually identified. Uh, whenever Rosh, Muscu, or Beth Togomar, Ezekiel 38.2. Twenty-seven, fourteen, and thirty-eight, six. I guess I'll put them all on there for the internet audience. Whenever we see this happening, whenever we see these countries that are so clearly identified, Rosh, you can figure out who that is, right? Muscu, Muscu. There's an H in there, I believe. Let me find it. Yeah, right here. You can figure out who that is. You don't need help. But when you see them start to quiver like they are doing, uh, we who are commanded to watch therefore, that is something that Christ says to us. You are those who must, it's a commandment. Watch therefore, 25.13 of Matthew, 24.42 of Matthew. We need to heighten ourselves and recognize that we are in an interesting time. Don't be caught sleeping by the high priest. That's a reference to the high priest who would go to the watchman and see if he could catch them sleeping as the enemies were approaching. Did you notice that there was an earthquake epicenter while this was all happening? And the epicenter was in proximity to what particular facility? That's right. It was the Iranian-Russian nuclear weapons facility. If you read Ezekiel 38, you'll note that earthquakes play a prominent role here. I mentioned in the pregame to this group, for those of you on the audience or in the vast internet audience, that uh, Israel will not be destroyed by Iran. They will not be destroyed by a nuclear weapon. That is a fact. 
and it cannot be violated. But also note that the Iranians, the first thing, or the Persians, because they are the Persians, I've covered this many times, Iran, of course, has its root in Aryan, uh, Aryan, right? Did I get that right? No, there's an R, Aryan. So in other words, Iran and Aryan are essentially the same words. You recognize the Aryan uh, element uh, from World War II. But notice that the Iranians, the Persians, threatened immediately to annihilate Israel, didn't they? They threatened the existence of Israel. They came out and said, we will destroy Israel. We will end their existence. Existence being the key word. The existence of Israel is the source of intense, a great hatred in the Islamic world, in the Islamic realm. And, and of course, also many factions of Christendom. Christendom should not be confused with Christianity. Christendom is the mustard tree parable. It is the mustard tree. They're distinct. Christendom is not Christian. It is the mutation that has, that comes. And Israel's existence is despised. So what's the obvious question? Why is it despised? It's a little tiny country. Oh, did you notice that they have come out with a cryoablation capability for cancer? And it has just been approved by the FDA. Did you see that? They are extraordinary, that little tiny country. Why are they hated? They're going to destroy with, I have cryoablation surgery on my pulmonary veins. Uh, trying to stop aberrant uh, frequencies from coming into the uh, uh, Atrium, left atrium specifically. Why would you hate a country that has technologically so advanced itself to where it will likely defeat tumorous cancers? But they do. And and the question again is, what causes this hatred, this dread of Israel that takes you back where? Where do you find dread of Israel? Because you saw it in the, when Nasser invaded from Egypt. They had, the Israelis created in them a great dread or somebody else created it in them. And you go back to the Dinah incident where uh, Levi and Simeon murdered the, the circumcised, which is a horrible crime. Uh, and God had to protect them by putting dread into the surrounding forces, dread of death, dread of Israel. And the Jews, once more, are under tremendous threat. They're targeted. This BDS, boycott, divest, and sanction that is so popular in one political party now in this country and popular in Europe. They're being beaten on the streets of New York in our country. Just indiscriminately attacked. Murdered in their synagogues, as you know. They whisper to themselves, uh, is this Nazi Germany again? That is what they are saying in the Jewish communities. Are we seeing the rise of the hatred that was in Germany again? Are they? Oh, yeah. Read your Bible. A little aside here. Jews and Christians best prepare. Because the world will hate Jews and Christians at the end of the age of the Gentiles. 
And the end of the age of the Gentiles is fast approaching, in my view. And the choice will be as long as we are here, especially for the Jews. It is the time of Jacob's trouble, not the bride's trouble. So the choice is going to be soft target or hard target. Guess which one Cliffside has chosen? You don't have to guess here, do you? But we know that this is coming. And comfort yourself. It is an incredible time. But speaking of existence, on Sunday, December the 22nd, 2019, I briefly uh, went into a few things, tried to make some connectivity between what I think are important subjects, especially the time of year, the, the, the winter solstice, the darkness that was here on the 22nd of December. And I briefly listed uh, specifically Exodus 3.14, and John 11:25, and they are the same. And it is important to know the sameness. I am that I am. Let me write that because I don't do it. Christ, whenever he says I am in your Bible, always take time to capitalize it. Because what is he doing? I am that I am, he says. I don't say it as loud as I think he said it or as powerful as he said it. He's God after all. He is the I am that I am. The I am that I am of of Exodus 3.14 is exactly the same as I am the resurrection and the life. Christ said in John 11.25 was referring to Exodus 3.14. It's critical that you know that. John 8.24 adds critical, crucial information. For if you do not believe I am that I am, you will perish in your sins. Now, the entire Tetragrammaton is not in your New Testament. You, Though, I say this a lot and I get some criticism for it, but I'll say it here specifically intentionally. You must know that John 8, 24, 8, 58 is referring to Exodus 3.14. They are all going back. John 8.58, Christ says, Before Abraham was, I am that I am. Exodus 3.14. And as you know, and hopefully you all know, I am that I am is declaring what? Okay, I'll help you. Existence. He's declaring that he is the one that is pre-existent. That means he is the one who installed and conceived time. He is outside of time. He is, again, the pre-existent one. That is what I am that I am means. It's what he is declaring. It is his existence, therefore, from which all existing flows. Because he is the first existence. And first isn't really accurate. He is the only existence. That's why I say all the time, if you want existence, you have to go to the existence store. As an analogy, he's the only one that has existence. So you must go to him. That is why there is only one way to be saved. There is only one way to the Father. That's why there's only one. No one else has it. No one else has the blood. No one else has the flesh. No one has the existence. No one has the life. All existence flows from the pre-existent one. All consciousness comes from him. All life descends from him 
who is life. All souls, all spirits. That is why biogenesis is so profound. Life has to come from life. Scientific principle, law of biogenesis. Life must come from life that testifies of Christ. The spirit and soul must come from life. Genesis 1, 3, John 8, 12. These are the same. I said that on the 22nd. I'm repeating it here mostly for the Internet audience and some that might not have made the 22nd here. Those are the same. John 8, 12, he calls himself the light of life. Genesis 1, 3. Let there be light. That is the same life. Light, I'm sorry. That is the light that made life in Genesis 1, 3, and he identifies himself as that. They are the same. Life must come from life. Consciousness must come from consciousness. Existence must come from existence. Spirit must come from spirit. You must know that he's spirit. He says so. You must worship me in spirit and in truth because he's the spirit from which all spirits come. Infinity has to come from infinity. That last one might not seem to belong to the others, but it does because it's talking about immortality and destination which we'll get to in a minute. Anyway, because he is the pre-existence one, all souls return to him. I hope that makes logical sense to to you. Ecclesiastes 12. Ecclesiastes 12. Uh, I'd say 1 through, but I'll really just leave it at 6 and 7. All souls go back to him because he is the source of all souls. The point being, yea, a point, page three. The only explanation that can account for consciousness is that which is given to us at Genesis 2-7. Let me repeat that. There is no explanation for consciousness, existence, mind, soul body, life that can that functions, that has any merit to it. There is no explanation other than what has happened, what is displayed, what is revealed at Genesis two seven. God formed the body and then he breathed in the life. That's the order, the soul, the consciousness, the existence. The words are interchangeable. There's no other possible means to accomplish life but that which is dis- the displayed, the declared at Genesis 2-7. Life has to be what? Given. Given. If it's not given, it can't be life. Which is why the evolutionists hate Genesis 2-7, Genesis 1-20, Genesis 1-21, Genesis 1-24, Genesis 1-30, and Genesis 7-22. It's why they hate those verses, because those verses talk about the giving of the spirit of life, the breath of the spirit of life. Has to be given. Consciousness, the soul, the mind, the will, the spirit is a caused, is a transferred, is a bestowed entity by the, by the I am that I am, the light of life. The life 
John 8, 12, 14, 6. I'm running out of places. He is the life. There is no other life. There is no other resurrection. There is no other existence. The life. No other life exists. Only his life exists that he must freely, willingly give for other life to exist. I hope you notice the duality of that. His life that he freely, willingly gave. His life that he... When he says that he gives his life, that is a Genesis 2-7 reference. So where do I go to find out where he talks about giving his life? How about John 19.30? That's why I said duality. John 10.11, John 10.17. There's a connectivity between Genesis 2-7, the giving of life, and the one who gave his life for life. Does that make sense? Did I say it in a way it made sense? He says, I must give up my life. And again, I want you to notice the duality, the Genesis 2-7 of all of those. Do I have Genesis 2-7? I'll circle it. John 19-30, Genesis 2-7. John 10-17, John 10-11. Anyway. During my little interlude or intermission, whatever you want to call it, letters have come in and phone calls. I got a pile of them, as I most often do. And I tell Lori all the time I've got to answer those letters. I make me answer the letters and she never makes me do it. And therefore, it's not my fault. See how yeah. she's unable to make me. So therefore, I'm absolved of all responsibility. If you watched me type, you would just cry and weep for me. Hope for the best. It takes me so long. It's horrible. The rest of you do this. It's crazy. I wish I had the power to amputate the thumbs off of every teenage being. Where am I? So I got all of these letters and phone calls come in. And I'll give you some examples. I think they are applicable today. Dwayne and Crazy Becky. You know who Crazy Becky is, right? Uh, They're interested in the mysteries of Judges 19. Would like me to deal with that. And I've done it in the past. It's incredible. Daniel, uh, we think from Texas, don't we? uh, Supper, if if you exist. We think we're right about that. Uh, he's considering Wilder Penfield's uh, 1975 conclusion to this incredible monograph that he wrote, uh, The Mystery of the Mind. Wendy from Dallas has been thinking about the limitations of angelic beings with respect to the physical reality. And more specifically, uh, she is uh, wanting to know about heat from plasma, how that plays into the angelic uh, structure, or if you prefer Matthew 25:41, that's the lake of fire. If in fact it is in, is plasma there, but not enough time to divert fully into all of these what you would think are disconnected subjects, but they're not disconnected. I hope 
but we shall at least uh, get them up here in the front. We're going to start today with Judges 19, something I barely address. So if you go online and you see my Judges 19, realize that that is a cursory uh, covering. I did it many, many years ago. Supper Dave, if he exists, he, he entitled it A Bloody Stump in the Mail. And, of course, it was such a clever... Uh, uh, it's accurate, I think, and I think I called it a bloody stump in the mail, and so he stole it from me and got I get no attribution. That's how it works around here. But uh, Judges uh, 19, 20, and 21, unbelievable, as all the Bible is unbelievable, as you know, but this is, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. Judges 19, 20, and 21 is filled, as all scripture is, with references to Christ. So when you're listening to me or reading it yourself, and I hope you read it yourself because I'm not going to get to very much of it today, we've got to look for him primarily, as we always do in the Old Testament. Where is he? Um, and so we're, that's what we're going to do first, is search for him. But we're also going to find a lot of other things. We're going to find Lot. Therefore, we find Sodom. Saul's here, Genesis 6, Judas, the man of God at 1 Kings 13, Hosea, John 8, Ezekiel 16, 15 through 43, is it Judges 19. And to be fair, all three chapters need to be read as one. I should read them all. And again, they're so extraordinary, and it's I can't even begin to describe it. I hope uh, you get the same... I don't want to call it joy, but I, that's the best thing I can give that I have always had for these three chapters. But they, they, they form a beginning and a middle and a conclusion of this incredible evil that is done by the tribe of Benjamin, the Benjamites. Great wickedness occurred here. And it, it is incumbent to correctly identify what the wickedness was. Many, many times when you read a commentary, they don't know what the wickedness is. They miss it completely. And if you don't get a firm grasp on what the wickedness was, then you lose almost all of the, of the three chapters. And, and so it's necessary to assign the true cause. This is a classic event traceable to a specific cause, and you've got to trace accurately. Okay, so we're going to start at Genesis, I'm sorry, Genesis, Judges 19, 1 through 12. I have to take the glasses off. And here we go. The title that my particular translation has, the titles are never, uh, Inspired, but mine says the Levite's concubine. Wow. That's a miss. But let's go. And when it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel and there was a certain Levite. Now I'm going to start erasing things. I won't write certain Levite on the board. But you should know when you see certain Levite, which one is he? How certain how distinct is he? Why is he described as a certain? Who else is certain? Where else in the Bible have we seen this certain? A certain Levite staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim. He took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem. Wow, that's probably a coincidence. In Judah. But his concubine played the harlot against him. And went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah. And was there for four whole months. 
That's probably insignificant. Just go right by that. Then her husband arose and went after four months. He arose, the certain Levite, and went after her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back, having his servant and a couple of donkeys with him. So she brought him into her father's house. And when the father of the young woman saw him, he was glad to meet him. Now his father-in-law, the young woman's father, detained him. So why is he detaining him? The guy comes to get his wife, his harlot wife, and the father-in-law detains him. Are you suspicious? You should be suspicious. And he stayed with him three days. Just go right over that. That's where else in the Bible is that? So they ate and drank and lodged there. Then it came to pass on the fourth day that they arose early in the morning and he stood to depart. But the young woman's father said to his son-in-law, refresh your heart with a sop of bread. No. Let's go over that. And afterwards, go your way. So they sat down and two of them ate and drank together. Then the young woman's father said to the man, Please be content to stay all night. Let your heart be merry. And when the man stood to depart, his father-in-law urged him, so he lodged there again. Then he arose early in the morning on the fifth day to depart. But the young woman's father said, Please refresh your heart. So they delayed until afternoon and both of them ate. And when the man stood to depart, he and his concubine and his servant, his father-in-law, the young woman's father, said to him, Look, the day is now drawing towards evening. Please spend the night. See, the day is coming to an end. Lodge here, and your heart may be merry tomorrow. Go on your way so that you may go home. (coughs) However, the man was not willing to spend the night, so he rose and departed and came opposite Jerusalem. With him were the two saddled donkeys, his concubine also with him. They were near Jerusalem, and that and the day was far spent. And the servant said to his master, Come, please, and let us turn aside into the city of the Jebusites and lodge in it. But the master said to him, We will not turn aside here into a city of foreigners who are not of the children of Israel. We will go on to Shebaia. So he said to his servants, Come, let us draw near one of these places and spend the night in Shebaia or in Ramah. And they passed by and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Jebeah, which belongs to Benjamin. They turned aside there to go into the lodge, and when they went in, he sat down in the open square of the city, for no one would take them into the house, into a house to spend the night. Okay. Did you find Christ? I tried to help you. Is God the certain Levite? If so, who's the harlot? The harlot who went away from him. Who is the father of the harlot? The morsel of bread, the sop, gave that away. Remember John 13, 26, 27. After the morsel, the sop, Judas left. Some might wonder why Christ gave Judas the sop, the most honored piece, the morsel. We'll connect it to Judges 19. Anyway, moving along. Jerusalem is a central component. We see Jerusalem. Well, that sends us back to Melchizedek in Genesis 14, doesn't it? Because that's where Jerusalem, he is the king of Jehovah, 
Jehovah Jireh Salam. He's he's also he's the high priest and he's the king of peace. Jebeah, that's the home of Saul. So now we have Saul here. No one would take the man and his wife. They had no place to sleep. Hopefully that made sense to you. You can find the New Testament compliments. If you read ahead, you'll find Bethlehem, bread and wine, and a young man involved in all of this. Verse 16 introduces an old man. Let me read that really fast. Just then an old man came in from his work in the field in the evening, and he was also from the mountains of Ephraim. He was staying in Jebeah, whereas the men of the place were Benjamites. And he saw the traveler. So there's this old man. He's a Benjamite. He takes in the certain Levite. They share bread and wine. They wash feet. Quick, dumb question right here. Dumb, dumb question. Did Christ know about Judges 19 when he's washing feet? Did he know about the morsel of bread? That's a dumb question, but it happens to be a rhetorical one simultaneously. Okay, what do we have so far? We have a certain Levite. We have his harlot wife. We have the father of harlots. Note my commentary there. We have an old man that shows up. How old is he? How old is old? Is he the man of old? Is he the serpent of old? You find Christ, look for Satan, look for the Antichrist. Where are they? Are they here? We have a young man, a servant. We have the three days. The Levite stays with the father of the the harlot three days. After three days, the Levite arose early. How early is early? Now let's jump to 22 through 30. Let's see. I've got to back up the page here. As they were enjoying themselves, so they're having this meal, suddenly certain men of the city, sons of Belial, It says perverted men, but it is the sons of Belial. Might say perverted in your in your translation. It doesn't mind, but it's specific. It identifies them as the sons of Belial. They surrounded the house and beat on the door. Does this sound familiar to anybody? They spoke to the master of the house, the old man, saying, "Bring out the man who came to your house, that we may know him." Your Bible might have carnally. It's not in the text. That's in italics. When you see something in italics, feel free to white it out or black it out. It's not in the Bible. But the man, the master of the house, went to them and said to them, No, my brethren, I beg you, do not act so wickedly. Seeing this man has come into my house, do not commit this outrage. (coughs) Look, my virgin daughter. And the Levite's concubine. Let me bring them out now. So he's willing to bring out his virgin daughter and the Levite's wife. Does that make sense? Why did he add his daughter to the mix? Or did he? 
humble them and do, do with them as you please, but to this man do not do such a vile thing. In other words, attack his wife, but do not attack the certain Levite. But the men would not heed him, so the man took the concubine of the Levite and brought her out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night, night until morning. And when the day began to break, they let her go. Then the woman came as the day was dawning and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was till it was light. When the master arose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way. Now remember, what had he drank? Wine. So what's the obvious question? How much wine? When the master rose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way, there was his concubine dead at the door. I know that because of uh, 25. Fallen at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. So she made it back to the threshold. And he said to her, get up. And let us be going. But there was no answer. So the man lifted her onto the donkey. And the man got up and went to his place. When he entered his house, he took a knife, laid hold of his concubine, and divided her into twelve pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. Now, it's really rare that I find a commentary that explains why that happened correctly. And so it was that all who saw it said, No such deed has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, confer, and speak up. And this starts a war. An incredible war. The harlot was given by the old man to the sons of Belial, Judges 20.13. Perverted men. What was the great evil? What was the perversion, if you will? And again, notice the woman barely survived it, but was only able to crawl back to her husband and cling to the threshold. She dies, Judges 25, 24 and 5, attempting to reach her husband. She made it to the threshold. Don't disregard that. Don't disregard that she crawled back. Her master, he is called here. And that gives you some demonstration of what this story is about. Obviously, Genesis 13.13 and Genesis 19 are being repeated in Judges 19. So these are the same. So we have again the sameness occurring. But it says, and I'll repeat, no such deed has been done. So what deed is it talking about? It's not talking about him cutting up his wife. It's talking about what was done to his wife. And the similarities are striking between 13.13 and 19 in Genesis and Judges 19. 
There's differences as well, and there's significance. So we'll have to figure out what is the same and what is different. Something was done to this woman that the master then cut her into 12 pieces, each segment containing evidences of what wicked thing had been done and why. And the tribes of Israel knew immediately what it was and that war was the only option. The Levite master says in Judges 24 and 5, The sons of Belial intended to kill me, but being unable to kill me, instead they forced her to death. And the actual rendering, I think the literal, is plundered her. So we have the side-by-side positioning of the virgin and the harlot. Hopefully that helps you start to draw conclusions. Two women, one a virgin bride, one an adulterous wife. Again, this is a testimony of Christ. We have King Saul. He's a Benjamite. He's from Jebeah, 1 Samuel 10.26. He cuts a yoke of oxen and sends the pieces throughout Israel, 1 Samuel 11.7, in order to raise an army. Identical. He's actually copied What happened in Judges 19? So I have a Benjamite who does this. Saul, there is none more beautiful than Saul, and he is a mighty man of power. 1 Samuel 9, 1 through 2. He's taller than all of the people. He's incredible. What's the obvious question? How do you get that way? None more beautiful, mighty man of power. We find in chapter 20 that the Benjamites are incredible warriors. They're able to defeat the armies of Israel. They're amazing. They slaughter them. It's only with divine intervention is Benjamin defeated. The tribe of Benjamin refused. they, They refused to give, to rid itself and give up the ones who... We're doing this great wicked thing. What's the obvious question there? Why not? Why wouldn't you give them up? Why did God require that the mighty men of Benjamin and their beasts be killed? Because he does. Let me read that to you. He says, and the men of Israel turned back against the children of Benjamin and struck them down with the edge of the sword from every city, men and beasts, all who were found. They also set fire to all the cities they were found in. They killed as many of them as they could and they lit their cities on fire and they killed their animals. Why would they do that? Something was in those 12 pieces. Benjamin got a piece. Isn't that interesting? Because there's 12 pieces. So why did that happen? Why did Benjamin get a piece of the woman? They got the evidences. Whatever the evil was, the nation of Israel had seen it before. Okay? Got that? We have to stop there for today. So you have to come back next week or read it yourself. Now I have more letters to give you. Let me start with Wendy. Wendy says this, Pastor Stephen, can angels be punished by fire? Are not angels ministers of fire? Can fire punish fire? How does fire punish a fire being? She asks. Uh, Scripture does say, 
hell was made for fallen angels and not for people. Well, that's kind of, it was made for fallen angels. And uh, not specifically for people, but people end up in it, don't they? But it does imply that the fire will hurt them or that it was made as a place of punishment for them. Satan and the false prophet will be thrown into hell for a thousand years. Actually, the false prophet and the Antichrist go into the lake of fire. They're the first. Satan goes into the abyss for a thousand years. Can fire punish a being of light? Also, I would like to send some money for pizza and chicken or whatever. Sunflower seeds. Unsalted. Yeah. Apricots, if you don't. Is this address that I found on Sermon Audio a good address to send it to? No, it's not. And I wrote her back and said not. This is where New Grace Christian Church allows us to parasitically suck their blood and be here. It's really a wonderful thing. Uh, thank you, Wendy, Dallas, Texas. She P.S. I've tried listening for a month and often had to listen three or four times. I still do not understand some of what I hear. Then I'm succeeding, Wendy. That, uh, that's really good. But I, fi- I found myself fascinated and I'm reading Who Made God uh, since you recommended that book. And that's a wonderful book. So that's Wendy. So how does that fit? Start thinking. Here comes Daniel. Letter from Daniel. Uh, am I correctly theologically? Am I correct theologically in saying that all who receive the breath of life from God are then set in motion to generate the heat required to maintain our earthly bodies, the quickening? So then, when this breath is returned to our Creator, the earthly body loses its true heat source. And he quotes Psalm 19:6. His going forth is from the end of heavens, and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. Okay, then we have Deborah. Deborah sent an article on second brain found in the heart neurons. Trust your feelings. And I can't read all of it. Uh, Amazing new discoveries show that the heart organ is intelligent and that sometimes can lead the the brain in our interpretation of the world around us and the actions we choose. A large number of cases studies prompt scientists to look differently at the heart and test old theories that the heart is involved in our feelings, emotions and premonitions. Uh, neurologist Dr. Andrew Armour of Montreal in Canada discovered a sophisticated collection of neurons in the heart organized into small but complex nervous system. The heart's nervous system c- contains about four, around 40,000 neurons, sensory neurites that communicate with the brain. Dr. Armour called it the brain in the heart. It's been known for many years that this is a distributive process. And the last part of this... The mind is not just in the brain. A quote from the late Dr. Clarence Pert, a pharmacologist at Georgetown University, explains the strange experiences. The mind is not just in the brain, but exists throughout the body. The mind and body communicate with each other through chemicals known as peptides. These peptides are found in the brain as well, in muscles and in many of our major organs. I believe that memory can be accessed anywhere in the peptide receptor network. Okay, so that's what Deborah sends. And then lastly, by lastly, I mean we still got an hour to go. I have something from Valjo. She said, unlocking the secrets of the feast, since you give me the author's name. And he says this, and she wanted me to discuss it. This is what the author of that particular book, uh, The Secrets of the Feast.
we immediately observe another thing in John 20:17, which has always puzzled me. When Mary recognized the resurrected Lord, he tells her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to heaven, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. I never fully understood why he said that to Mary. Why couldn't she touch him? And then he thinks he found a reason from Josephus, uh, which I won't read for obvious reasons. Okay, so... What do we got here? Wendy has raised many issues in these few sentences. I got you. I'm going to hustle now. We're on page nine. That's pretty good. She brought up Psalm 104, the great psalm of creation, to quote Henry Morris. Because she's right. Psalm 104, the angels are ministers of a flaming fire. Henry Morris calls 104 this this psalm of creation, and again, it nails that. This is the laying of the foundations of the earth. That means what? That means matter and energy and space, time, gravity, the nuclear forces, the strong and weak nuclear forces, the expanding, the stretching out of the universe. All of that is in Psalm 104. And the creation of angels are there as well. They are called the ministers of a flaming fire. And Wendy says, well, it looks like briar patch to me. You're barn in the briar patch, you're throwing you in the briar patch. What's the problem here? Why did God create or establish the lake of fire? Eventually is where we're headed in Matthew 25, 41. And he made it for the fallen ministers of fire. That's her primary question. Because it says, 2541, that the lake of fire was made for Satan and his angels. And this will eventually, this question will incorporate the design of the lake of fire. Its dimensions, its location, how big is it, where is it? What's the structures, are there structures in it? Does lake mean water or plasma? When did the lake of fire get made? You've heard me discuss that with respect to the trial of Genesis 3.15. Darkness. The earth is covered in darkness. Remember that? Genesis 1.1.1.2. When was darkness made? What I'm asking is, how did darkness become darkness? What is God? What is he always? Light. So how did I get darkness? What causes darkness? Is darkness something that's made? Answer that in your spare time while I keep going. Christopher. There's that dementia striking me at the oddest time. Where did that come from? Who is this Christopher? Scripture reveals that the lake of fire is the second death. So when was the second death made? And fallen humanity who are subject to the second death versus those who are not subject to the second death will be cast into the lake of fire alongside the fallen angels and Satan. The first to occupy the lake of fire, as I said, is the Antichrist and the false prophet. And so all the temporary areas of confinement, and I have, I have the, the abyss, I have the Tartarus where the fallen angels are. 
I have torments. All the areas of confinement will be emptied. The sea will give up its dead. And the lake of fire will be the eternal destination of those who chose it. And there they will be confined. And thus the impact has this element of a loss of freedom of movement, a limitation, if you wish to think of it that way. So there's a couple of inferred questions now. If there is a second death for mankind, is there a second death for angels? If there is a second death for angels, it seems there would be, because the lake of fire is a second death. What is the first death for angels? What is the first death for mankind? Are they equivalent? Are they not equivalent? What is the differences? What are the similarities? Why is the lake of fire a place of burning? That, we, you know, we, we have that. We call that Phoenix. Hi, Jennifer. Here I'm at 25 below complaining about Phoenix. What is Phoenix now? What do you think? Probably at least 45 degrees. Why is the, it a lake of fire? Why not a lake of ice? Is a lake of ice miserable? We know that it is. Fairbanks, 50 below. That's a lake of ice. And it's miserable. I've seen Fairbanks way colder than that, I'll tell you. And, uh, I, I, as soon as I found out it got that cold in Fairbanks, I said, I am never living here. And I have been right about that my whole life. Those people are so tough, I can't even begin to describe it. But again, why is it a place of burning? There must be a reason it's burning, and there must be a good reason it's burning and not frozen. What's the meaning of it? What's the purpose of burning? How is this punishment both for human and angel? But the real question is, is fire fire? We experience fire. Is our fire fire? We experience it as heat, as light, it's plasma. Is our fire the lake of fire fire? Does that make sense? Then you're weird. Wendy is questioning the similarities and the differences of human and angelic beings. Mind and body and mind and body. What am I saying? I'm saying humans have mind and body and angels have mind and body. We can find that to be true. Daniel brought Psalm 19 to Wendy's Psalms 104. Psalm 19 presents the sun, this ball of flame, which is heat, light, fire, particle light. All those things are wonderful, by the way. Oh. First mistake of the new year. I should get a mulligan. I should. This is the first mistake. Doesn't count. It's 2020. How did it get to be 2020? Wasn't it just 1965, just a couple of weeks ago, I think? It's amazing what is happening. Okay, I, I will concede that it probably deserves to be there. Psalm 19 presents the sun, flame, heat, fire, particle light versus non-particle light. You need to know there's two lights. God calls himself primeval light 
And particle light is a type, a portrait of his primable light. The sun in Psalm 19 is attached to the bridegroom coming out of his chamber rejoicing. So it says the sun is, can be pictured, not the sun, the bridegroom coming out of his chamber rejoicing is pictured by the sun. And the obvious question there is why does the bridegroom come out of his chamber? And why does he come out rejoicing? And who is the bridegroom? And how is this like the sun? What is the circuit of the bridegroom? I hope you remember that from Daniel's letter. Nothing is hid from the heat thereof. So Daniel, not Daniel, Daniel, but Daniel from Texas, we think, is asking if this heat that is of the circuit that nothing is hidden from, is, is that the light of life, the primeval light? John 8, 12, Genesis 1, 3. Is that the light that creates life? Is that the breath of life? And I should say that I am aware that Psalm 19 raises the issues of zero motion and relative motion. Is there such a thing as zero motion? And if it is, who can see it? Is everything else relative motion compared to zero motion? means nothing to you now, but that's the first and second law of thermodynamics ultimately. Psalm 19 is often cited as saying the sun has a path and orbit. But I submit it's the bridegroom who has the heat that reaches the ends of heaven. The sun is a portrait of the bridegroom. Heat, as I said, will get us into thermodynamics. This transference. What else is transferred? What else is given? How is heat transferred? How is life transferred? Psalm 19.7 The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. What does that mean? The soul, that's 19.7 of Psalm, follows 19.6. So clearly 19.6 is about the soul. I brought up Wilder Penfeld earlier. Penfeld, a brilliant neuroscientist, concluded that the brain alone cannot account for the mind. So what does account for the mind? And the key question becomes, once the body dies, how does the mind get energy? What is the source of energy? What is the source of energy that restores the mind or the soul after physical death? In other words, the departure of the soul from the body would necessitate an energy source. Consciousness requires energy. Who then provides the light of life? That's a rhetorical question. That is what Daniel from Texas is trying to draw. And then along comes Deborah. And I know it would have been better if it was along comes Mary. We can't have everything here. I've used that joke twice now and it was hilarious both times. Maybe you didn't think so. Deborah's subject topic is the location of the soul mind, isn't it? She's trying to decide where in your body is the soul mind. Evidences are accumulating that both the heart and the brain are intelligent. They're reasoning. They have logic mechanisms. Is the mind located in the, in the brain or in the heart or in both? Or is the mind throughout the entirety of the body? Is that one uh, <coughs> gentleman surmised? The question is, this is the location of the soul. Where is the soul? How has God designed it? What are the implications if the mind is throughout, if it is interwoven into the body? The breath of the spirit of life, the life force, the consciousness is such a mystery. 
which is why the essence of our personhood, which is called qualia, philosophical term, our self-awareness, becomes the important issue. This is why you're going to see me go into anesthesiology that, for example, as a science, pretends that it can end consciousness. Anesthesiology, anesthesia affects the memory of the brain. Is the memory self-awareness? Is that you? Have that discussion many times. It's another rhetorical question. Lastly, here came Val Joe. And she wanted to know about Enoch and Moses and Aaron and Elijah and the Apostle John and the 144,000. She doesn't know it. Hi, Val Joe. But that's what she's asking. Now she knows it. She asks about Christ and Mary Magdalene. Christ and Mary Magdalene. Do not touch. But Christ and Thomas touch. He says to Mary, don't touch. Thomas, let's touch everything. With Mary, Christ has to ascend to the place of the blood. And, I'm sorry, has to ascend to place the blood of the, on the altar in heaven, John 20, 17. He says so. Don't touch me, I've got to ascend. And there's an angelic altar, if you want to call it that. It's actually the heavenly altar, the heavenly tabernacle of which Moses' and Solomon's temple are portraits of it. But the high priest cannot be touched until he has poured the blood on the altar. He goes alone into the Holy of Holies, Leviticus 16, 17. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes, when he ascends to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and descends. So that is what Christ is doing. He's talking about, don't touch me. I am in the high priest role now and I'm going to ascend. You can touch me when I descend. That's why Thomas can touch him and Mary cannot. Has nothing to do with Josephus. Sorry, not really. Thank you. Sorry. Christ is demonstrating the portrait that is Leviticus 16:17 at John 20:17 through 27. Leviticus 16:17 is the Old Testament complement of John 20:17 through 27. And obviously, there's many more questions. This is the beginning of this huge pile that we have to do this. But I just want you to notice for today that Mary is doing what? She is clinging to Christ. Now, how do you think she's clinging? When you see Christ, what usually happens to you? You fall down and you grab his feet. He says something about himself. I am the door of the sheep, John 10, 7. And Mary is clinging to his feet. And he is the door. We should look into the Old Testament and find a harlot whose hands are on the threshold of the door. That would be convenient. Oh, wait. There you go. 